Welcome to the Vineyard Church Cardiff podcast. Alice is continuing our series in Philippians this week uh, under the banner Joyful. Hello. Anyone that knows me knows that I love an occasion. I love to have something to celebrate, whether it's New Year's, whether it's bonfire night, whether it's my birthday, whether it's someone else's birthday. I don't mind what it is. I just love a good occasion. And I love Christmas as part of that. And I love the whole season, all the trappings of it. I love it. But you know what? As I went into Christmas this year, my primary emotion wasn't one of excitement. It was of extreme grumpiness. Um, we have a tradition with my sister and her family that um, on the week before Christmas, we all head down with the kids, we all head down to Barry Island, nowhere better, and we have uh, chips on the beach, maybe some hot chocolates as well, and the kids run around. That's just one of our traditions, Christmas traditions. But this year, as I turned up at Barry Island, I just felt really, really grumpy, <laughs> not helped by the fact that I totally then stacked it on the sand in front of everyone. <laughs> But I knew it was more than just that. I just felt really grumpy. And I was talking to my sister about it. And I was like, I just can't get excited. I just feel really grumpy. And as I talked about it, I realised that the reason for my grumpiness could be summed up with one word. Uncertainty. You know, suddenly before Christmas, you know, with the Omicron um, variant and all the news around that and it, you know, spreading, um, suddenly everything felt a bit uncertain. You know, my Christmas plan suddenly felt a bit fragile. The chances of seeing family who I don't get to see that much suddenly felt a bit dimmed. I just was feeling really grumpy because of the uncertainty. Now, maybe think of a time that you've been in a season of uncertainty. You know, many people will be like, do you know, Alice, I'm in one right now, you know, as we go into the new year and there's still a lot of uncertainty. Maybe it was a different time, more particular to your life. What was your primary emotion in that season of uncertainty? How did it make you feel? I said, I felt very grumpy, (laughs) but you know, in different seasons of my life, um, in moments of kind of where uncertainty has been even more acute, you know, where there's been even more at stake in really difficult seasons of my life, marked by uncertainty, my emotions have, have not just been grumpiness, but ones of fear, anxiety, anger, Now, today we are carrying on looking at the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And this is a great time of uncertainty for Paul. Paul is writing to them from a jail cell, probably in Rome. It's not explicitly said. Um, And either way, wherever he is, he's under Roman um, authority in prison. And he has no idea what is going to happen to him. You know, there's a reasonable chance that the authorities might suddenly decide to execute him. You know, human life was cheap in the Roman Empire and perceived troublemakers were fairly easily disposed of. This is a time of deep uncertainty for Paul. His situation is definitely precarious. So it is deeply surprising to me, at least, that Paul, as he writes this emotion, uh, as he writes this letter, his primary emotion is one of joy. Joy. Joy is the undercurrent of the whole letter of Philippians, more than any of his other writings. Yet this writing by Paul, this letter, is the one that's written in a jail cell. How can that be? We're going to be looking in the next part of chapter one, and we will see as we do so that this isn't just kind of joy for joy's sake. I mean, Paul clearly isn't enjoying being in jail. You know, he's not just trying to see the bright side of a bad situation or anything like that. This is a deep joy from a life spent with Jesus. And Paul's joy, I think, is deeply challenging as well as hugely inspiring for us 
kind of in equal measure those two things, joy in a time of uncertainty. Let's have a look. I'm going to pick up where Paul Crutchley, different to the Apostle Paul, <laughs> too many Pauls, it all gets very confusing. We're going to be in verse 12 of chapter 1, where Paul Crutchley got us to last week. Here we go. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me whilst I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. There we go. So Paul, as he continues his letter to the Philippians, he is kind of going out of his way to encourage the, church, the Philippians, the church in Philippi, who were probably feeling a bit discouraged by the fact that Paul is in jail. They were probably asking questions of the Lord, you know, about how this has happened. You know, this would have felt like a huge hindrance to Paul's ministry. You know, if you think about it, if you're a missionary like Paul, then being able to move around this vast area spreading the kingdom message was essential to have that freedom. So to suddenly find yourself imprisoned in a jail cell probably looked like a death blow to his ministry. You know, like an athlete that has a severe injury that means they can no longer compete. How can Paul, how can Paul possibly carry on with the work God has called him to when he's stuck in a jail cell? I wonder if that's what they were thinking. On paper, this doesn't look great. But Paul is writing to encourage them that, yes, of course, on paper, this looks bad. It does sound bad, but God is at work. Because whilst the Roman authorities have tried to quash Paul's message, his sharing of the kingdom message of Jesus, the opposite has happened. Paul is keen that the Philippians realise that instead of stopping the advance of the gospel, it has, in fact, prospered it. Paul now has this unique voice into the Roman guard, you know, the Praetorian guard. They were like this elite unit within the Roman army, like the secret service within the Roman army. And these soldiers would have taken it in turns on a shift rotation to guard Paul's cell. So Paul, here he is in chains, but he's suddenly in this unique position to talk to these soldiers. Instead of shutting Paul up, the authorities have kind of inadvertently given him a kind of an almost a pulpit to preach from, as it were. Paul may indeed be captive, but he has a captive audience. You know, these soldiers can't go anywhere and Paul gets to speak to them, um, to these soldiers, the ones who are closest to Caesar, who are right at the heart of the, um, of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. These soldiers who would have heard it proclaimed time and time again that Caesar is king, Caesar was Lord, that he was the saviour of the world. I mean, that's what Caesar believed about himself. Now they get to hear from this troublemaker, Paul, that Jesus is Lord, that there is a different kingdom to the kingdom of Caesar, to this oppressive regime that was the Roman Empire, led by this tyrant called Caesar. Paul instead gets to speak to them of King Jesus, the Christ, whose kingdom cannot be imprisoned, cannot be halted or contained, but is everlasting. And what joy Paul feels as he preaches good news 
into dark places. The joy he feels as he sees the gospel spreading in the most unlikely way, in the most unlikely circumstances, whilst he's in lockdown. His joy is even more as he hears about the believers, he says, in Rome, who are being inspired and encouraged by his boldness and his faith. And so in verse 14, it says, they are now daring all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You know, these believers, they've heard what Paul's doing in prison. You know, this must have been causing quite a stir among the, among the Roman soldiers. People must have been talking about it, about what was going on. And the believers in hearing this are emboldened to then do likewise, to also share the good news of Jesus. And one can only imagine how angered Caesar must have felt where he's trying to kind of, um, you know, contain this Jesus movement. And it's just leaking all over the place. You know, he cannot possibly contain it despite his best efforts. You know, the gospel is advancing and there's nothing Caesar can do about it. Paul's faith, Paul's faith increases the believer's faith. We all have had that experience, haven't we? You know, where someone else's faith, someone else's stories of sharing Jesus, they've given us faith to go and do likewise. You know, a quote was shared with me just this week that says, testimonies are an invitation for God to come and do it again. I love that. And that's because they build faith and expectation in us as believers and therefore allow the spirit to move. You know, so if you kind of at the moment, you know, you've got what's been termed as January-itis, you know, if you're feeling downhearted, uninspired, read some great God stories. Read the book of Acts, you know, the Gospels. <laughs> Share your own God stories within your small group, within your communities. Be emboldened by testimonies that speak of how the kingdom is advancing. The good news of Jesus is being shared in dark places. Now, Paul does acknowledge here, doesn't he, that not everyone is proclaiming Christ with the best motives. Look at verse 15 to 17. It's not really super clear what's going on here. We know that these nuisance makers, they're not false teachers. You know, elsewhere in the letter, Paul comes down really hard on people that are teaching an entirely different message to the message of Jesus. No, they're not false teachers. Um, they were probably just normal Christians with a chip on their shoulder. <laughs> I'm sure that sounds familiar. But people that had an issue with Paul's leadership, who didn't want to maybe be led by him, who saw the gap suddenly left by him not physically being present there, seeing that as an opportunity to maybe further their own interests, their own, as I said, their own selfish desires. Who knows? We don't know. But hey, it happens, doesn't it? And Paul is like, I don't really care about their motives. He says, what does it matter the good news of Jesus is being preached, and I'm all for it, he says in verse 18. I rejoice. Paul's joy, even in the midst of great uncertainty and difficulty, both posed by the Romans and by actual by his fellow Christians, comes from seeing that the gospel cannot be imprisoned. It cannot be limited, of seeing the kingdom advance and knowing that it is good news into dark places. You know, as, as I was looking at uh, this uh, chapter this week, it made me think of a wonderful, wonderful man called Kevin, who used to go to Trent Vineyard Church, um, where I also used to go back in the day. Now, I didn't know him super well myself, but my sister knew him and his wife well. And she will tell you of the most remarkable story of the last few weeks of Kevin's life. Kevin has now passed away. He was in hospital. Um, I said in those last few weeks of his life, he had really, really aggressive pancreatic cancer. He was in palliative care at the hospital in Nottingham. And his wife told Chloe of how when, uh, she, when she'd go and visit him, she would go up in the lift and she'd come out onto the, onto the ward, onto the floor of the ward, and she'd be walking towards Kevin's room. And, more, and then on more than one occasion, the nurses would be leaving the room in floods of tears. And of course, Kevin's wife would be like, oh, oh dear, Kevin has finally passed away. But no, she would go into his room and find him there. 
Instead, he would be sitting there awake. He had been sharing his faith with the nurses looking after him. He had been speaking to them of their life, their experience, and telling them of the good news of Jesus. He'd been praying for them. He'd been comforting them with the things that they were struggling with. Isn't that amazing? He was seeing the kingdom advance right up until his last few weeks of his life. I love that story. It's amazing to hear that even in the most, amidst the most greatest difficulty and uncertainty, the kingdom can advance, that God can use even the most difficult times for his good. Now, of course, I say that, um, and please do not think, do not hear that I'm underplaying or oversimplifying the deep mystery of suffering. I am not intending to offer a kind of neat pack conclusion here. Those of you that know me at all will know that I would never do this and that I've preached otherwise. But both in Paul's story and in Kevin's story, there is this profound truth of the Christian life that God can work through all circumstances for good. He can take what was meant for evil and turn it to good. That's Genesis 50, verse 20, words that Joseph shared, you know, after his own imprisonment, if you know the story of Joseph. That God can take what was meant for evil and turn it for good. Is that not the story of the cross of Jesus? As I said, this is a mystery and not one that I can unpack fully today, and I'm not trying to oversimplify. But we do see that Paul is able to embrace this mystery in a deeply joyful way because his eyes are not fixed on his circumstances, on the uncertainty of his situation, on the precariousness of his situation. But instead, his eyes are fixed on the person and presence of Jesus. Let's jump back in to the passage where he says this. This is Paul. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. You can translate this. And yes, here's another reason to rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul starts by saying, I'm full of joy because I ultimately, I know ultimately that my life is in Jesus. It talks in verse 19 how he lives a life sustained by the spirit of Jesus, by the presence of Jesus. And he says then, for for I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That verse, I think, sounds a bit confusing. might just be me, but, you know, he's talking about deliverance. He's talking about deliverance from jail or is he talking about deliverance on a kind of bigger, you know, talking about salvation or something like that, the saving work of Jesus. It, it's hard to understand, but it makes much more sense when you realise that Paul is quoting from the book of Job here in the Old Testament, where that exact phrase is used. In the book of Job, if you know it at all, we see Job wrestling with an extreme level of suffering that he has been through. And he's questioning throughout the book the very person of God and this mystery of suffering and, and kind of crying out the injustice at all that has happened to him. And then in Job chapter 13, he's arguing with his kind of so-called friends or advisors. And and they say to Job, you know, Job, you've got no right to complain, Job. You know, God is clearly displeased with you because you are a horrible person. You are clearly an awful human being and God has punished you. You're just going to have to accept it. 
And Job speaks back and he refutes this. And he says, no, I know that's not true. I'm a good man. God is pleased with me. And then he speaks about how he intends to stand before the Lord Almighty and make his case. This is what he says in Job 13, verse 13. He says to his friends, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And then here it is. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. Job knows that with confidence he can come before the Lord. He is sure that God is not displeased with him and that whilst his life, whilst life is full of pain and suffering, he will be able to one day stand before God and in the end, everyone will know that he was right. And Paul quotes Job here in this letter to the Philippians. He quotes, uh, he uses this verse likewise. He says, you know, I know that God is, is for me. You know, he's not against me. I know that God will not leave me. That even though he, Paul, is uncertain about what the coming few weeks or months have in store, of what will come of him being in chains, of what kind of account he's going to have to give before Caesar, he knows that he will not be ashamed, that Jesus is king and that all will be well. In a time of uncertainty, Paul knows what he can be certain of. And this is a source of deep joy for him. You know, his hope is ultimately in Jesus. He's not placing his hope in anything but Jesus. He cries out for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, he is living all out for the king. He has sold out all of his eggs are in one basket, if you like. He's all about the king. And this changes everything. This changes his perspective on his current situation, on the difficulty and uncertainty that he's in. You know, it's worth saying that Paul has chosen to be in this situation. He's been told prophetically that this imprisonment was coming his way. You know, if you look in Acts chapter 21, and there's a story of how Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And this great guy, this guy called Agabus, this prophet, comes to him and he takes Paul's belt. And then Agabus binds his own hands and his own wrists. And he says to Paul, that is a symbol of what's going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. You are going to be bound and you're going to be imprisoned and handed over to the Gentiles. And if you read the rest of the story of Acts, that's kind of the beginning of how Paul has ended up in prison in Rome. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was on my way to somewhere and someone who I knew was deeply prophetic came and said to me, Alice, when you get there, you're going to be bound up and you're going to then be put in jail. I'd be like, great, thanks for the warning. I'll go somewhere else. That's what you'd say it as, wouldn't you? Oh, thank you, Lord, you've warned me to avoid that suffering. Not Paul. He knows that it is the Lord's will that he goes there and he keeps going. He is happy to be imprisoned if it means that the gospel is preached. He knows it's the Lord's will. Now, this is, of course, the story of many followers of Jesus over centuries who have gone to prison or to death because of, um, in order that the gospel be preached. But, of course, it's not our reality for vast, vast, vast majority of us in the Western world. And most of us listening will find that idea deeply challenging. And it's so easy, isn't it, because it's not our reality to live with a very different mindset. You know, to me, to live is me and I must avoid discomfort at any cost. That's the mindset that we can live with. And so Paul's experience and declaration, his mindset can make us feel really uncomfortable. It can be deeply confrontational. But let's not rush to push that feeling away. It can be a marker to help us see where we are living by the gospel of me. And it's an opportunity to reorientate our hearts. Be encouraged that for Paul, living in this way, being all out there for the king is pure joy 
because he knows that Jesus is worth it, that he wouldn't want to live any other way. He's discovered a profound truth that we can discover, tr- that we can discover too. It is a pure joy to realise that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's perspective on life is totally changed and it is um, challenging for us. And his perspective on death is changed, you know. Living for the king, living with our eyes fixed on Jesus, not only changes how we view life, but how we view death. Paul knows that this deep reassurance that whatever is coming his way, it will not be the last word. It will not be the last word. I love this quote by Frederick Buechner, who's an American writer and theologian, who says some wonderful things. The worst isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world, like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even. Yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. I love that, the laughing deep in our hearts, that deep joy that comes from knowing that all is well and that all will be well, of knowing what awaits us in Jesus, that whatever difficulty we are in now, we will be in heaven, that the worst thing we are in now is not the last thing. The last thing is the deep joy of heaven. And Paul, in chains for the gospel, he longs to go and be with Jesus. You know, that word depart that he uses there. In the Greek, it has this sense of kind of breaking camp. You know, imagine kind of packing up your tent um, and then moving on to new pastures or, or being on a ship and pulling up the anchor and then sailing away. That's the kind of picture Paul has in mind. He longs just to sail away and go and be with Jesus. He longs to be with his king. And I think he also wants to encourage the church in Philippi that should news reach them of Paul's death, that it's okay. He's happy to be in his saviour's arms finally. He longs to be with his king. He says he's torn, he's hard pressed between longing to be with Jesus on one hand, but also sensing there is still work to be done. You know, verse 22, he talks about the fruitful labour and he senses, he knows in his knower that actually he, he senses that he will be set free and carry on his mission. There is still kingdom work to be done and Paul is willing to do it. The gospel is worth labouring for. Now, of course, our situation, your situation, is probably very different to Paul, but maybe you're also tired out. You know, maybe you feel hard-pressed on every side. You know, another wave of of coronavirus, it's exhausting to get our heads around. You know, the uncertainty of what the next few months may hold. Maybe just for you, there's a very particular situation or circumstance you're in that is really, really difficult. Maybe like me, you've kind of prayed over, you've prayed to Jesus over the last couple of years, you know, in in all the difficulty there have been the last few years. Maybe like me, on a few occasions, you've prayed and you said, Lord, come again. Lord, would you just come back and save this world? But there's still work to be done. The kingdom is advancing and we are being asked to join in the labour. Or as Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There is a danger in times of uncertainty and difficulty that we retreat back. But I believe that we are called to push forward, to see the kingdom advance, even in the most unlikely of circumstances, even in the midst of uncertainty. And we do this with our eyes fixed on Jesus, joining in with Paul's heart cry, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
In the midst of uncertainty, Paul is full of joy that he sees the kingdom advancing. He's also full of joy that one day he will get to be with Jesus. He can be certain of that and he's happy to pour himself out in fruitful labour in the meantime. And then finally, see how Paul is full of joy that he gets to do this in partnership with others. His joy that the church in Philippi are his, as it said in verse 5, partners in the gospel. Note this kind of interchange of encouragement that is happening here between Paul and the church in Philippi, this church that he so dearly loves. You know, they have encouraged him by sending one of their own from their own congregation, this guy called um, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has left and he's gone to to, uh, Paul, found him in his prison cell, and he's brought a gift from Philippi with him. You know, when you were in jail in those days, They didn't provide food for you when you were in jail. No, you had to find some way of getting food brought to you whilst you were in jail. And Epaphroditus, he's turned up with a financial gift and no doubt is helping meet that need for Paul. And Paul is just so encouraged that this church would do that for him, that his fellow um, partners would do that for him. So he's feeling encouraged. And then he's writing to encourage them as a church, to encourage them in what Paul sees in them in church and to encourage them in what Paul is seeing in terms of the advance of the gospel. So there's this mutual kind of encouragement exchange going on here. And this is such a source of joy for Paul and I'm sure for the Philippians to know, for Paul to know that he is not alone, that their prayers, as he he says, are upholding him. Who is God inviting you to encourage this week to remind that they are not on their own, that your prayers are upholding them? One of the tendencies of the last few years I've noticed is for people to pull back from community with each other. It's so easy to do, especially at the moment when you can just kind of shut your way um, off at home. Can I encourage you to fight to be in community in this season? You know, the joy of doing this faith adventure with others, of sharpening each other's faith so that we too, like Paul, might be able to declare to live as Christ, to die, gain. You know, can I just ask and recommend that you join a small group Um, within the life of this church, if you um, want to know that joy of doing this faith adventure with other people. And if you're already in a small group, go to it. (laughs) Fight for it. Fight to be in community. Let me tell you a universal truth about small groups, as I see it. The night that your small group evening rolls around, you often won't want to go. Am I allowed to say that? You'll be tired. Work will have overrun. It'll be the last thing that you feel like doing. This is so often the case. It's not always the case because our small groups are amazing, but it is often the case. Even for us as leaders, you know, a few weeks ago, um, uh, my small group was coming over to my house and literally um, a a shelf in my fridge um, exploded, shattered, and there was glass all over, like all over the fridge, inside the fridge, in all the food everywhere, plus all over the floor in the kitchen. And then my youngest, my eldest son comes back from football training. He hasn't had time for tea, so he's also trying to kind of trying to fix him some food amongst the glass, which, as I said, is everywhere. And I was like, oh, my gosh, small group are going to be coming soon. I go to pick up my phone to text to say, I'm sorry, guys, I cannot do small group this evening here. It is chaos in my house. And then I see the time and I'm like, actually, I don't have time to cancel small group. People would already have left. They turned up. They saw me in the midst of the chaos. (laughs) You're not always going to want to go to your small group. A lot of the time you will. But you know what? It's true on those nights when there's just every resistance to stop you from going. Those nights when you have to fight to be there. Those are often the best evenings where you leave from having been in community, feeling encouraged and joyful and refreshed. There is such joy to be had in deep community with other followers of Jesus. You were not made to do this journey alone. 
You have to fight to be in community with others, especially at the moment. Can I recommend that you do that? Join a small group, go to your small group. Be in a community that prays for each other, that encourages each other, that lifts Jesus up together, that celebrates where we see the gospel spreading, that reminds us of the hope that ultimately waits for us in Jesus, that walks with each other through seasons of difficulty and uncertainty. You know, for Paul, this church, this fellowship is such a source of joy for him. He rejoices in it. He is deeply thankful for it. And so as we find ourselves in a time of uncertainty, may I encourage you not to shrink back, but to push forward. You know, don't fall ill with January-itis, as it were, this week. You know, the kingdom of God is advancing and he is inviting us to partner with him. And we do this keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing what we can be certain of. And we do this together. And my prayer and expectation is that we would know the deep joy of heaven in our hearts as we do this. Amen.